And in case you haven't noticed, for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at Jesus. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Jesus again, but we're going to look at Jesus' mission, the mission of Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, how in the world are you going to do that in like 35 minutes? I'm not. We're going to do that in six hours. No, no I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Well, here's what we're going to do. We started the series uh, a, few, a couple months ago now by looking at the Apostles' Creed. And remember, we said the Apostles' Creed is the oldest statement of Christian beliefs, and it continues to be the statement that, that Christians believe across denominational lines and throughout history. And if you put the creed back up there, you'll notice the creed is three parts. As I've said a couple of times, there's a father part, a son part, and a spirit part. You know, it's a Trinitarian creed. But interestingly, maybe expectantly, 70% of the creed or more is about Jesus. So after it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that starts the Jesus part. It begins with a statement of Jesus' identity. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That sounds an awful lot with, like Peter said in Matthew 16 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But then after that, we get this long discussion of Jesus' mission. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to use the Apostles' Creed to tease out the main turning points of Jesus' mission, right? So here, there are five main turning points in his mission, right? You want to jot these down or something, uh, and I'll show you how we're going to do it in a minute. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ is only Son and Holy. Here, here are the five now. Who was conceived of the Virgin Mary, right? Born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended to the Father, uh, sitteth at the right hand of the Father, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Here are the five. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, judgment. They're the five key turning points in the mission of Jesus. Now, do you know what a turning point is? A turning point is a decisive change in direction. Have you had a few of those in your life? A decisive change in direction. I got a phone call uh, a couple of nights ago from a friend of mine announcing that his daughter is getting married June 24th and wanted to know if I was free. Uh, so let's check this out. How many of you are married or have been married? Raise your hands. All right, good. Some of you are married and didn't raise your hand. I'm not sure what that means, all right? Uh, well, if you are married or have been married, how many of you would look back on that and say, you know what, that was a turning point. Something changed. Yeah, I'm not, you're afraid, right? Uh, same with children, right? Marriage is a turning point. Having kids is a turning point. If you had twins or triplets, I know that that's a turning point. I, was, uh, I had dinner on Monday night over in KOP. But it wasn't the normal KOP. You know where the mall is, right? Then they kind of have that road around it where all the good restaurants are. Well, this person says, Charles, we're going to meet at Fogo, right? Fogo de Chao, we're going to meet there. Well, I had never been there, and so I, it's not on the loop, right? I go around and around, it's not there. It's in some little ancillary section that's brand new. Well, eventually I find it by using Waze on my phone, right? So I find it, I go in, we have dinner. But then I have the hard task of getting home from Fogo. And so I go out and make a turn. Oh, at 422, I know where that is. I get on 422, and then I'm lost, right? Not, again, I stop. I stopped, pulled over, put ways in my phone. I had to make a turn. I had to make a turn and change of direction because I was headed on the wrong way on some road I had never been on before. Turning point. You're headed in one direction. All of a sudden, things change. You make a decisive change of direction. Those five turning points are decisive changes in direction of Jesus and his mission. So in some ways, this morning's going to be 
kind of like a, a life of Christ, right? Five missional moves, five key turning points in Jesus' mission, which means I really have got my work cut out for me. Usually how we do this is I read a passage for two minutes or so, and then I talk about it for like 30 minutes. Well, we can't do that today. We'll be here all day. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you where the turning point shows up in the creed. So on the screen, you're going to see the creedal turning point. Then I'm going to read a passage that explains the turning point or expounds the turning point from the Bible. And then I'll make a couple brief comments and we're on to the next turning point. And here's the, yeah, right. I'm going to try, right? We're going to try. We've got to agree together. Now, this is going to be different. Some of you aren't going to like it. Some of you are. I don't know. But it's mainly going to be turning point from the creed. I'm going to read to you a passage. A couple quick comments. On to the next turning point. All right? Now, I would recommend you write down the turning points and write down the references. And you will have somewhere in the front of your Bible on a piece of paper the main missional movements in Jesus' life. That's pretty important for us to know, right? Well, we better get started. First of all, incarnation. Incarnation. Now, I've said before that incarnation just means in flesh, right? If you've had chili con carne, that means chili with meat. Jesus is God in meat, right? Jesus is God in flesh. He shows up and he's got meat on him. Um, so we've got a whole two book, well, two sections of the New Testament tell us about the incarnation. The nativity, the Christmas story, is not found in all four Gospels. It's found in Matthew, and it's found in Luke. And we're going to be spending a lot of time leading up to Christmas reading and reflecting on those. We're not going to do that today. I am going to read a passage. But let me ask you, Christmas is six weeks from today. All right, now, I want to embarrass some of you, make some of you feel guilty. So how many of you have done any shopping thus far? Raise your hand. All right, put your hands up. How many of you are finished shopping? That's disgusting right there. I knew there were going to be some. How many of you just don't shop? You're a cheapskate. Oh, we got a few of them too. Okay, good, good. So you're all done. All right, so the, the key missional move in the creed says he was, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. And here's the passage I'm going to read. I'm going to read from Luke 1, 26 through 38. So you want to write that down? Luke 1, 26 through 38. Here is the Christmas story According to Luke. Now it's longer than this, I'm just going to read some verses. Here we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. That's amazing, right? 
Do you see the passage that the writers of the creed took and put into a statement? Jesus, the first turning point, the first missional move, Jesus sitting on the throne of the universe, CEO of the universe, right? You can't get promoted from there, right? See the throne of the universe. Next minute, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Nine months later, born of the Virgin Mary. Talk about a descent, a descent into greatness. And we kind of have two births contrasted in what I read, right? Elizabeth's birth is improbable, improbable. Um, you know, you ever watch the news and you see a 70-year-old guy with an 11-year, with 11-year-old son? Some of you just threw up, I know. I can't help it. I, I see it every once in a while, right? Uh, some of you know it. Some of you are sitting there saying, amen, amen. You're older. You weren't planning on it. Don't raise your hand or say anything. Your child sitting next to you may have to go to therapy. <laughs> but it's improbable to have a kid if you're older. It's impossible to have a child if you never had sex. But the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary. Conception. God. Human being. 100% each. How does that work? I don't know. Nine months later, Jesus is born. You know, a couple things that uh, the incarnation remind me of. Think about the context into which Jesus was born. A few weeks ago, we talked about sin in the context of Genesis 3. That's the context. Jesus leaves heaven, holy, glory, sanitary, clean, righteous. The next minute, he steps into a cesspool. God takes the first step to bring us home. He sends Jesus on a mission, and Jesus volunteers for the, for the mission of leaving the glory and splendor of heaven, coming to this filthy, sin-cursed world in order to take us to be with him forever and ever. That's incredible, isn't it? That's the first move, the first turning point, the incarnation. Jesus becomes a human being. That's not the last turning point. The next is the crucifixion. Crucifixion. Here's how the creed says it. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, we can read about the crucifixion in all four Gospels, but I chose to read a section from Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew 27, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. 27, 11. And you'll see why a few passages that I'm going to read from Matthew because he kind of connects the dots for us nice and neatly, all right? But you can read about the crucifixion in any gospel. Here's Matthew's account. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate, right? The one mentioned in the creed. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who was called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to them. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. 
But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, there it is. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Um, when I think about the crucifixion, a couple thoughts come to my mind. Here's one. God takes sin seriously. We, not so much. Isn't that right? You want to see how seriously God takes sin? Look at the cross. Look at the crucifixion. That's the price that sin requires. God takes sin seriously. We don't think that much of sin at all. We chuckle. We laugh. It's kind of a snicker word depending on the sin you're mentioning. Well, whatever sin you think of, the price, the payment for that sin is separation from God and it's death. It's capital offense. And here's Jesus taking our place. So what do we learn about ourselves from the crucifixion? Jesus gets what we deserve. What do we learn about God through the crucifixion? He loves us with an amazing, incredible, hard, difficult, impossible to understand kind of love because he takes our place and pays our penalty. That's amazing, isn't it? That also um, brings us to the part of the creed that is the most misunderstood and probably the weirdest, and that is... He descended into hell. That's where it's He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The reason I chose to read the Matthew portion is because the Matthew portion actually gives us the wording that I'm sure the original writers of the creed had in mind. If you read a little further in Matthew's gospel, you come to these words. Jesus is on the cross, and as he's being crucified, he cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you think all the way back to the beginning of this series, hopefully you're beginning to see the themes meshing. I said at the very, at the very beginning of the series, I said, Christianity is all about remembering. But we often have a weak definition of remember. In order to get the opposite of remember, you've got to understand dismember. In order to understand dismember, you need to know what a member is. What's a member? A member's a part. You have members of your body, hands and feet, fingers, ears, noses, whatever, right? They're all members of your body. If a part of your body is cut off, it's dismembered. Well, if you're going to remember the dismembered part, you take the part and you stick it back on. Then it's remembered. And surgeons can do amazing remembering jobs in our world today, right? What's the price of sin? Dismemberment. Remember we talked about alienation in four directions? Alienated, separated, divided from God, dismembered from each other, from ourselves and the world, Jesus is paying the debt. On the cross, Jesus absorbs all of our sin, and the absorption of our sin causes alienation between him and his Father. Last week, Carlos talked about the intimate relationship that the fathers had with the Son through all eternity, and here's a disruption. Every time Jesus prays in the Gospels, every time 
he calls God Father, except here. Because at this moment, God was not Father. He was God. There was alienation. So, if the price of sin is alienation, dismemberment, Jesus is dismembered relationally from his Father so we can be remembered and connected because he who didn't deserve it was dismembered. See how the story fits together? It's almost as if somebody planned it. Yeah, crucifixion. God takes sin seriously. We, not so much. Well, the next move, it doesn't end with crucifixion. The next move, we'll just turn over to Matthew 28. And that is the resurrection. The third day he rose again from the dead. Follow along as I read the beginning of Matthew 28. Oh, no, that, that, yeah. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance, appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook him and, and, they, and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped, him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There you will see me again. Now we could talk a lot about evidence, you know, and I don't know all the evidence, but there are lots of evidences that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. But let me point out just one line of evidence that is pretty tough to get around. Jesus attracts as disciples a gaggle of cowards. Agreed? A gaggle of cowards. In fact, if truth be told, you and I would not probably pick any of those 12, you know, to be uh, the board members at your corporation, board members at our church. We wouldn't pick any, any of them. They're all derelicts and cowards, right? They're so afraid that Peter even denies that he knows Jesus and curses Jesus when a little slave girl says, I think you're one of them, remember? But just a few days later... Peter, along with the other disciples, stand boldly before thousands of people claiming that Jesus is raised from the dead and they're all followers of his. Now think about that. If they executed their leader, do you think they'd have any qualms about executing the rest of them? What made them so courageous? What changed their hearts? They saw Jesus, who was dead, alive again, and that changes everything. I've said before that the resurrection is kind of like our receipt, that all of Jesus' promises are good, and we can take them to the bank. Uh, it's football season, and I love football. Except I don't understand something, and I really wish it would stop. If your team's losing by 60 to 6, how in the world can the cheerleaders keep cheering? Did you ever notice that? They go to a high school game, 45 to 3. Go, go, get them. Like, my guess is they don't even know what the score is, all right? Now, now I, I don't want any emails. I know some of you think cheerleading's a sport, all right? No emails, no emails. I'm not here saying 
We need to be cheering even though the side lost. Here's what I'm saying. We don't cheer because it looks like the score is 60 to nothing. We cheer because the final score has been posted. When Jesus walked out of that grave alive, he is the first of all of us that are going to follow. We are all coming because Jesus was the first. His resurrection shows what is ours because of the gospel. And so it may look like at times that appearances would say, yeah, but does your side really win? Yeah, you look back at that empty tomb and you say, yeah, it may not look like it right now. Our side wins. Jesus is alive. And you know what else we need to think about in resurrection? Our future is physical. Now, I'm not sure where the idea came from. But there are, it seems there are lots of Christians or people that go to church that somehow think our forever is this ethereal, vague, spiritual existence without anything material. That's Eastern. That's not Bible. The Bible is a physical future. And we're going to have imperishable bodies just like Jesus. I'm looking forward to an imperishable body, aren't you? I mean, I'm 57 years old. I get hurt sleeping. I mean, don't you? I mean, I wake up in the morning, my neck, I, I very carefully have to get out of bed. I'll hurt my back, I'll hurt my leg. And you know, I'm on the downside of the mountain, right? Um, you know, I'm not at cruising. Cruising altitude is 27. 57 is not cruising. You're on the descent. And some of you are much further in the, into the descent than I am, so don't laugh. But isn't it an amazing thing to think about our future is physical and we're going to have bodies that don't wear out and don't get sick. I'm never going to be more athletic than I am right now. I'm never going to be faster. I'm never going to hit a golf ball further unless they come up with some mechanical driver that hits it for me or something. Yeah, but one day, I'm going to have a body that gets healthier as I go and stronger as I Isn't that incredible? All that's resurrection stuff, right? And you wonder what we have to celebrate? You know, right now, you can look back on some things in your life that happened a couple decades ago, and you can say, what a fool I was to be real concerned about that. Can I let you in know a little secret? Ten million years from this morning, right? You come and see me. Ten million years from today. A whole bunch of stuff you're worried about and fretting about, nervous about right now, not able to sleep about, will just bring a smile to your face, and there'll be a distant memory. We've got a physical future, and we've got a receipt that says... Hey, the final score is already posted. Jesus is alive. But that's not all. That's the next move. The third day he rose again from the dead. Then we have the ascension. And, you know, lots of Christians, you know, lots of people, we go to church, and we talk a lot about incarnation because Christmas time, right? And we talk about crucifixion because of Good Friday. And we talk about resurrection because that's Easter, right? So the main holidays are. But if you're not Episcopalian or Catholic, you don't talk about ascension that much. But ascension's pretty important. Ascension shows up in the creed like this. Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, descended out. Third day he rose again from the dead and ascended. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Here's our passage, Acts chapter 1. I'll read the first 11 verses. Acts 1. You keeping track of your verses? Here we go. In my former book, Theophilus, this is Luke writing, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my, holy, my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you uh, into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Ascension. Where does Jesus rise to? Jesus' whole mission is about down, up, down. It keeps going down and up, right? Jesus is in heaven, CEO of the universe, comes down, incarnation. Jesus is crucified. Talk about down, down. He is raised from the dead, up, ascends into heaven, all the way up. The Holy Spirit then comes down because he went up. And what's the last step? He sends us out. This is a down, up, down, out message. In fact, that's, that's all you really need from this morning, right? Down, up, down, out. That, that's how it goes. Jesus ascends. But what does the ascension mean? It, ascend, it means that this morning Jesus is seated in the control tower of the universe directing all the affairs of his creation. Now, it may not always look like that, but that's because you're not as smart as he is and you don't understand all the nuances and reverberations in that deal. But the throne of heaven isn't vacant this morning. Jesus sits on it. And it may not be going according to your plan, but it's right on schedule according to his plan. And often when things look the darkest and blackest is when the light shines and the crescendo comes. And we're about ready for that crescendo, I'm afraid. Notice, the one who ascends is the one who will descend. He's coming back, and when he comes back, all things will be made right. Jesus returns, and then it'll be great management and leadership. My guess is uh, some of you have been part of organizations, corporations, companies, divisions, departments that were poorly managed and poorly led, and it was terrible and wretched to be involved, right? All of a sudden, you get a new leader, get a new manager. She cleans house. All of a sudden, it's kind of fun to go to work now, right? Things are getting done on time. Customers are exceedingly pleased. Everything's rolling. Yeah, that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. The leader, the manager, who is omniscient and omnipotent, puts everything in order, and things will run as they were intended to run. Ascension. Sovereignty. He's also our advocate and we are sent out. So again, the Holy Spirit does not descend so we can sit and have great worship services together. Right? I mean, it's, it's fun to do that, right? But as I've said you know, before, this is kind of like locker room stuff, right? You don't win the game in the locker room. When a team before the game gathers in the locker room, they kind of go through the plays, and, but then they go out on the field to play the game. Well, we gather and it's kind of fun to gather. We leave to play the game. We leave to be salt and light. We leave to bring unity. We leave to be messengers of the gospel. The Spirit comes down, so we go out. That's the point. Got that piece? All right, we've got one more. 
And that's judgment. Now, judgment's a little different than the other ones, in case you haven't noticed, because um, all the other ones are past. Did you notice that? Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, they're all past. So Jesus um, was born. Christmas we celebrate in the past. Jesus was crucified. Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus did ascend to heaven. Um, But now it's future, right? Here's a little English lesson on the screen. From thence he shall come, shall, and will. They're future words, right? And so he's going to do this. And some of you are sitting there thinking, but how do we know? Well, look at the rest of the story. How do you know? When he rose from the dead, he said, hey, he's coming. When he ascended, I'm coming back. We know because of what's come before. After all, the Cubs won the World Series. Right, 108 years, they were thinking it's never going to happen. It happened. Now, the Eagles never have won a Super Bowl. And I can tell you, one day they will. Maybe. (laughs) But I know one day Jesus is returning. And I know one day we will stand before him. And I know that right now we're 54 minutes closer than we were when we sat down. We are 54 minutes closer to this scene than we were when the service started. A little sobering, isn't it? Well, let's read the passage from Matthew 25. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, just like it was promised in Acts 1, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you touched and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to eat or to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply to that. He will reply, Truly I tell you, whenever you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's pretty sobering stuff. I want to call your attention to one word, the word inheritance. He says to the sheep on his right, come to your inheritance. Can I remind you? You don't earn your inheritance. You're given your inheritance. 
and you're given your inheritance when somebody dies and gives it to you. What have we said thus far in the story? Somebody's already died. And we now can be adopted into that family and share his inheritance because he died and gives us the inheritance. So here's how it works. We are accepted by God and forgiven of our sins by faith. But there is a judgment that's based on what you do with the faith you have. Every time judgment is mentioned in the Bible, it's a works judgment. Now, that doesn't mean we need to develop checklists and do those things. Here's what it means. Those that have experienced grace, extend grace. Those that are bathed in forgiveness, forgive others. Those that have received generously, generously give to others. And so the evidence of the inheritance that we have is lived out in replicating that inheritance to others. That's all it means. This isn't a works deal. It's if we keep the gospel in the center, we will live out the themes of the gospel. That's all Matthew 25 is saying. It begins with an inheritance and culminates in extending what we've been given. I went to a funeral service a few weeks ago, and Jeff Supp spoke. And uh, he compared life to golf. And I hate that illustration. But here's what he said. He said, consider a round of golf, 18 holes, is kind of like a life. So 18 holes is 90 years. That means every hole is five years long. I hate that because I'm hitting my fourth shot on the 12th hole. 11 holes are already done. I'm lying three on the 12th. I'm not finished yet, but I'm more than half done. You know what judgment's all about? Numbering your days. Considering carefully what you do with your mouth and your body and your resources and your time and your relationships. Making sure Jesus is in the center so we're spinning off gospel stuff. Rather than having something else in the center, we're sucking everything in. There's a big difference between being a vacuum, sucking everything in that'll never fill the hole on the inside, and having the hole on the inside filled by the gospel. Now you can send stuff out. That's the difference. That's Matthew 25. So how are you doing with that? Five turning points in the mission of Jesus. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, judgment. Four are done, one left to go. Ball's on our court. Well, we're going to close. Uh, the band's going to come out. We're going to sing at the end. But we're going to close by reciting the creed together again. And the reason is that 70% of it is what we talked about this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Stand up. We said the creed to start the series. And if you remember, I said something then that most people probably don't think about when they say the creed. Here's what we're saying when we say the Apostles' Creed. I am pledging my allegiance to Jesus Christ the center of the creed. But along with your allegiance to Jesus, you're stating your disagreement and your rebellion to different narratives in our culture. So let me mention a couple of the narratives that you are saying you're rebelling against. 
When we say the Apostles' Creed, we're rebelling against the narrative of materialism. More stuff will make you happy. No, it won't. You're rebelling against emotionalism. That truth is determined by what you feel. No, it's not. You're rejecting hedonism, that the goal of life is pleasure. And we're pledging allegiance to Jesus and the only gospel that brings unity and forgiveness. Will you join me as we declare our allegiance and our rebellion? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We will now join the band and sing the creed. the sun. 